Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Welcome to this small cap mini-series on the Australian Investors Podcast. This is episode one. In this series of three approximately 20-minute individual episodes sponsored by NAOS, we're going to cover the case for small cap investing, take a look at some of the lessons learned, and how to invest in smaller companies. In this episode, I'm going to talk to you about the opportunity and what it takes to look across the market and analyze these types of businesses. In episode two, I'll be joined by Rob Miller from NAOS Asset Management, who will talk to us about the investment process that NAOS has been following for more than 10 years. In the third and final installment, we'll have Sebastian Evans, the managing director of NAOS, come on and talk about the harshest lessons he has learned investing in small cap companies. Each of the two gentlemen will also bring with them two smaller companies to put on your watch list so you can start the research process yourself. All of these episodes are being sponsored by NAS because they are running their annual investor roadshow around the country. And you can go along to one of these events for free, grab some lunch, grab some tea and coffee and speak with the team at NAS and hear what they have to say about smaller companies. So let's make the case for small company investing, often called small caps, or if you're down the very pointy end, micro caps. A lot of investors know that smaller companies tend to be the more interesting part of the market for more experienced investors, because you can go back decades and find that there's a lot of academic theory suggesting smaller companies tend to outperform larger companies. And intuitively, this kind of makes sense, right? You would have a smaller company that has more room for growth than a larger company that's already mature. Now, of course, it's a lot more nuanced than that, but that's the general appeal. Let me give you some examples of where this type of, I guess, outperformance relative to other types of investments might show through. The first and most obvious one is that down this end of the market, you tend to get fewer analysts covering these companies. So while there might be thousands of companies in the small cap universe, there are typically fewer and fewer analysts the further you go down. And this is because large Investment firms simply cannot afford to invest much of their money in these small companies, whether it's because of the risk, 
whether it's because they're just simply too large to buy enough shares for it to be meaningful. For example, if you had a $1 billion fund and you tried to allocate 10% of your portfolio, it's $100 million. Some of the companies might be that size in total. So to try and get $100 million worth of shares, it's pretty difficult to do that in one trade. A company that you're going to hear about in this series is Gentrack, a Kiwi software company. Gentrack currently has five analysts covering its results and forecasting its returns. And I'm getting this data from Refinitiv via Selfwealth. Another company that you might have heard about on the show before is a company called Laserbond or ticker symbol LBL. When I last checked, Laserbond had only one analyst covering the financials and making forecasts. When I say this, I mean sell-side analysts, analysts who are paid to research these companies, even if they don't seek to invest in them. But let's put this in contrast. So Gentrack has five, Laserbond has one. Commonwealth Bank, as far as I can tell, has at least 14, and some estimates of the number of analysts that cover this are up to 30. Over in the United States, there are at least 32 analysts that cover Apple, and I'd bet hundreds of more that don't submit their forecasts to the ratings and database agencies. So just on that fact alone, we can see that smaller companies tend to be less well covered. There's less data, there's less research. There are fewer analysts speaking with management and doing their valuations. So this creates something of an asymmetry between what the opportunity might be and the exposure that that opportunity is getting, whether it's in mainstream press or just in the investment industry. It also makes it more difficult for individual investors because You may be relying on broker research reports, as much as I'd say that's a bad idea. You may be relying on those. And so you simply cannot find them wherever you're looking. There's also another type of asymmetry that happens in small cap companies. And one of those is around information. And here I'm talking about it's not simply that easy to get a lot of information on these smaller companies because typically they don't employ investor relations firms or IR They don't have lots of people internally who are making presentations look pretty. To be honest, it's oftentimes just the CEO on a PowerPoint uh, slide pack, just simply putting things on the page and then getting that checked by the board or by someone internally. So it's not often as illustrative of what's actually happening in the business. They don't have that level of rigor around governance and these types of things. And ultimately what happens is some investors who put in the work can actually piece together more information according to mosaic theory, and build the picture of what they're trying to look at inside this company and the opportunity quicker than other analysts or other investors in the market. Another thing that you might find when you invest in really small companies is it's much easier to get your head around what they do because they typically have like one business line and maybe only operate in a few geographies. Sometimes you can just drive past the factory and see what it is that they're actually doing or you can go to the store and visit the few stores that they might have around. And finally, sometimes and oftentimes, if it's a small company, management are actually pretty accessible. Even if you're an individual investor, they might pick up the phone if you call or respond to an email pretty quickly. And of course, you can jump on investor calls and ask your questions. And to be honest, a lot of the small cap CEOs that I speak to actually welcome intelligent questions. As long as they're not focused on What's the share price doing today and why is it down? But more so things like what's going on inside the business. Just make sure you understand the industry and you understand the business before you approach them so you can ask the right questions. The thing about smaller companies, however, is it comes with risk. And Sebastian will be quick to point this out in his episode. Oftentimes what happens with small companies is you have smaller teams. 
And then this introduces something called key person risk. Oftentimes, the CEO is also wearing many of the different hats and also overseeing day-to-day operations, whereas you get a CEO of a large company, say like a big bank or technology company, and their primary job is just meeting with other executives and interfacing with institutional investors and the board. But in smaller companies, those people can be vitally important to the growth. If you think about it, if you're the CEO of a 30-person team versus the CEO of a 30,000-person team, the influence that you might have and the risk of you not being there is quite substantial. As I mentioned, some of these businesses have one business line. A good example of this might be, say, SmartPay, which is a payments business. It does payment terminals right around Australia and New Zealand. That's its one business, and that's what it does. There are some minor differences, and it does operate in Australia and New Zealand, but you kind of get the gist. A lot of bigger businesses operate in many geographies and have multiple jurisdictions in which they're governed. So this actually creates an opportunity and a threat to businesses like this. There are many different risks associated with small cap investing, including governance, which many investors should be aware of. I often see a lot of promotional types of CEOs and management teams and boards of directors get away with things in smaller company land that they simply would not get away with if they were further up the market cap spectrum. But it's undoubtedly true that a lot of the smaller companies that we see in Australia, maybe even New Zealand, have the opportunity to grow in their market without becoming too big of a fish in that little pond. So for example, I mentioned SmartPay, the terminals business. One of its key competitors is and was Tyro. It was much easier to see that SmartPay's business model was more effective and it was kind of catching on when it was a $50 million market cap company, a tiny company in 2018. It got a few licenses and approvals and it started to repeat the process of marketing and installing more of its terminals. It is now a $400 million company, or thereabouts. Contrast that with Tyro, which at the same time had a market cap of around $1.5 billion and was competing head-on with the banks. You can see here that SmartPay doesn't have to take much of the market in order to be potentially a market-beating investment idea. And that is fundamentally the difference, because all around the world, companies that tend to go outside of their core competency and outside of their core market tend to have a rough go of it. Bruce Greenwald and other uh, really well-known investors talk about companies that try to invest outside of their core circle of competence or their core competitive advantage. Those businesses tend to become riskier as they grow because they take on too many of these unsuccessful ventures. Whereas if you can stick to your knitting, have a repeatable process as a small company and continue to go around and around and around, you can often find that those types of businesses have a few years of good growth runway without needing to take on the excessive and uns- excessive risk and uncertainty overseas. So these businesses can have large TAMs or total addressable markets, even just within one geography with one product. And that's what makes them so appealing. But again, the key thing here is that these businesses are more risky. So position sizing is really important. So how many small cap stocks are there? According to the ticket terminal, which I jumped into before recording on this podcast, there are over 508 companies with a market capitalization over $200 million in Australia. So 508. That's from over 2,000 on the entire stock exchange. So we go from 2,000 to 508 over 200 million. This would mean that there are 75% of the companies under $200 million. 
Many of these companies, however, don't have significant profits, if at all. Many of them have very shaky business models and are even smaller and smaller again. Many of them are in areas like the resources industry. Many of them are in biotech or healthcare where you may not necessarily think these businesses have a competitive advantage or are indeed investment grade. An interesting thing that we also talk about in this mini-series is private company investing. In Australia, there are 2.6 million registered small businesses. Many of those, however, are sole trader businesses, so single-person operations. If you just narrow that field of focus to companies with 20 employees or more, there are 63,000 of those. And some estimates have it that companies with more than $5 million there are at least 40,000 of those. So outside of the stock exchange, there are significantly more smaller companies in Australia. However, they're extremely difficult to invest in. And that is where real information asymmetry exists. Because many of those companies, if you were a shareholder, may not necessarily even have to report their financial results to you. Whereas on the stock exchange, of course, they have to be fully disclosed to you. There are ways to invest in those private companies, For example, we'll talk about the NAOS Private Opportunities Fund in this mini-series. Sebastian goes into detail about some of the difficulties or challenges that have presented as they've gone about that process of using a managed investment fund to invest in private companies. There are other ways too that you can experience this with platforms like Equitize, Virtual, or even Primary Markets. These three companies try and facilitate investing in private companies or public companies that may not be on the stock exchange. For example, Equitize and Virtual are crowdfunding platforms, and companies go to them to try and get their community to invest in the business. For example, if I was raising money for the RAS Group and I wanted to sell some shares, but I didn't necessarily want to go to the stock exchange and be put up against all of the reporting and disclosure requirements, I could go to a crowdfunding platform and see if I could raise capital that way. A lot of the focus on this podcast, and indeed most investment podcasts around the world, is, well, should I be investing actively or passively? Sometimes we've mentioned on this show that there are organizations out there who do indeed talk about the difference between active and passive in a more intelligent way than simply going, well, passive has lower fees, therefore it's better. Because that's simply not always the case, especially in small cap investing. For example, a Morningstar report, which is called the Active Passive Barometer from March 2021, this is going back a couple of years, shows that for small cap growth funds in the United States, there's actually a better than 50% chance that those funds outperform the index. Now, I'm going over three and five years here. If you go out a few years to say 10 years, it becomes about 41%. What this basically means is that For smaller companies, it tends to be the case that active fund managers who are skilled and who are successful at what they do can actually provide pretty good returns for individual investors. One of the problems with this, however, is that it's hard to find good small cap fund managers. And when you do, oftentimes those funds are wholesale funds only, which means you have to meet certain requirements. They're difficult to invest in because they may only be available on a financial advice platform or they simply don't have capacity. And by that, I mean, they've already filled up their fund with the 
amount of money that they wanted to get in that fund. And this is very important to understand because as funds get bigger, investing in smaller companies becomes significantly more difficult. That's why I like to find good small cap fund managers early in their journey. So why not ETFs and index funds in this part of the market? One of the most common small cap indices in Australia that many investors refer to when they try and judge the performance of smaller companies is the XSO index. This tracks the performance of 200 shares outside the top 100. So for example, this is for the companies between number number 100 right down to number 300, those 200 companies. This is the same index that is included in the VAS ETF from Vanguard, but it wouldn't be included completely in some of the other ETFs that track the 200 or 100. So it's slightly different. You're getting slightly smaller and what I would say probably is medium-sized companies in this mix. This index over the five years to September 29, 2023 has returned around about negative 4.4% not including dividends or franking credits. The ASX 200 in that time is up 14.16%, not including dividends. So we have a near 18% divergence between these two similar but different indices. And what it points to is that the smaller companies in this basket seem to be not performing nearly as well as the larger companies at the top of the market. Now, if we go back many years to well before, say, 2010, and we look at the performance of these indices through that time, the ASX 200 is up around 41%, not including dividends, and the small ordinaries is down 4%, again, not including dividends. So we see a meaningful divergence between the smaller companies in Australia and the larger companies in Australia over time. Of course, past performance is not necessarily indicative of future performance, but what this lends itself to is an opportunity for small cap fund managers to potentially do better than large cap fund managers. Of course, you need to pick wisely. So what are some of the things that you could maybe look at if you are interested in this type of investing? Well, if I was looking at a small cap fund manager, I would look at these things. I would look at things like the track record. How long has the firm or the fund been in place? And over that time, importantly, is the team still the same? Because if the track record is good, but the team has changed, is that really reflective of the, the ability of that fund manager to outperform? Of course, fees can be pretty taxing down this end of the market. You can be looking at 1% or higher management fees plus a performance fee. The next thing that I look at is funds under management or FUM. And again, the reason here is that I'm looking for good small cap fund managers early in their journey because you tend to want them to be able to be nimble in this part of the market. So anything over $150 million for really small companies in a concentrated portfolio and $300 million for slightly larger companies uh, that the fund manager may be investing in, that tends to be a pretty good limit of where you may see the ceiling on these things. So I'm looking for smaller fund managers who are less well-established but have the processes in place that I think are respectable. We'll hear from NAOS in this podcast series. It's important to understand they are not actively managed funds like you would see anywhere else. They're actually listed investment companies that are actively managed. So they've got a company structure, 
And this has significant advantages in small company land because it allows the fund manager to focus on the long term without having to worry about what investors are coming in and out and facilitating those trade flows uh, by liquidating part of their portfolio. Another thing to consider is, is the fund retail or wholesale? A lot of funds do tend to be wholesale at this end of the market because if you're a wholesale investor, you can attract bigger minimum balances and you don't have to go through a lot of the compliance requirements that you may have to go through if you want to issue a PDS and have a retail fund. The retail funds typically have minimums of $20,000, whereas wholesale funds might have minimums of $250,000 or $100,000. Another thing you might be mindful of is diversification. Hubris is really important at this end of the market. And oftentimes, if you have fund managers who are highly concentrated, you may find that their ego may be getting the better of them at this part of the market. Because it's already a risky part of the market, so to have highly concentrated portfolios may expose you to a lot of volatility. It may be what you want, but it may not be what you want. A way to gauge that is to look at something called the maximum drawdown of a fund. This is basically the best performance to the worst performance. If you just look at that chart over time, what was the worst period of performance for that fund? That's called drawdown. Finally, I'm going to throw three things in here if you are selecting an actively managed fund, and some of these apply to a listed investment company as well. I want a repeatable and consistent process. I want the fund manager to espouse the same, uh, I guess, logic and reasoning and process over time. So if you listen to the fund manager talk today versus five years ago, are they saying something that's still similar? Has their philosophy or process shifted too far away? Because that may be an indication that they're chasing funds under management rather than sticking to their knitting. Second from last, I want to make sure that the fund manager is transparent with me and communicates regularly, especially in the bad times. If a fund manager just disappears when performance goes bad, and they often do, in fact, that's probably the most common thing that I see, that's a really strong signal to me that that fund manager may lack integrity, and I may not necessarily want to be around that firm longer term. Finally, of course, you've got to do the usual checks and balances. Go to the website, make sure they operate under a financial services license, they have a reputable custodian, and maybe even offer an online experience. That's the way the industry is going, and so future-focused fund managers will offer those things. But how about if you're just investing for yourself in this area? Rob and Seb do a good job of explaining many of the things that they look for at NAOS, but I thought maybe I'd just add a few more in here. I think it's really important down this end of the market to make sure you keep an investment journal. Your journal could be Twitter, it could be a Google Doc, it could be literally anything. We use Notion at Rask. You could look into your journal at any time and see why you own a company and the research that you did. You should also be mindful that some people might argue that in the smaller company land, it's important to have a more active approach than might otherwise be the case with larger quality companies. Because you're investing in smaller, illiquid companies that are very volatile and often aren't as high quality and resilient in their business models, a more active approach to managing your portfolio may be required. But it all depends on the type of small cap investing you're doing. For me, that is not really the way I like to invest. I'm willing to ride a lot of the bumps and bruises along the way in order to buy and hold one of these investments for the long term. If you're looking for new ideas, I would highly encourage you to go and bookmark the pages or subscribe to the free newsletters of the really reputable fund managers that you can find. This way, you've basically got a stream of ideas that come to you and you can begin to piece together a watch list. Many of those fund managers are also open to feedback if you have researched those businesses and you do want to send them some of your notes or research. Finally, if you're new to this, just be very careful. Investing in smaller companies isn't for everyone and indeed it doesn't have to be for everyone. 
There are a lot of charlatans, promotional management, and dodgy operators at this end of the market. So make sure you go go into it with your eyes wide open. Look for reputable people. Don't get sucked into what you read on social media or even from a professional fund manager because they simply don't have the same incentives or priorities to you unless, of course, you're invested in that fund, um, which I hope there is some alignment. The next installment of this podcast will feature Rob Miller of Naos, followed by Sebastian Evans for the final installment. If you do like these shorter, punchier episodes, I'd love to do more of them. I love these mini-series. I love putting them together. So let me know what you think. You'll find a link in the show notes if you want to go and take part in the Naos Asset Management Roadshow. Remember, it's free to attend and you get some coffee and tea, maybe even some sandwiches for your troubles. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.